Okay, so today we're going to talk with Scott Fendorf, who wrote a really nice um, view paper with Holly Michael and Lex Van Geen called Spatial and Temporal Variations of Groundwater Arsenic in South and Southeast Asia. And I've sort of known Scott for a while. I was, before I did this call, I was trying to remember how I met him, but I think what happened is I sent him a random email when I was a postdoc. And during that random email, he, I was desperate help for to do iron mineralogy, which is Scott's expertise. And with that random email, he put me in contact with his grad students and postdocs who were going to do beam time in Chicago. And so they taught me everything. It's like his students sort of saved me, saved half my postdoc, helped me get like almost, I think, two or three papers out. And I've sort of been indebted to Scott. He probably doesn't realize this as I'm saying it. I've sort of been indebted to Scott ever since. And so I've always, I see him at meetings all the time. I love talking to him. It's always sort of a great, he has great insights and we sort of overlapped on different um, sort of Department of Energy meetings over the year, even though we've never done arsenic work together. So I'm sort of, I'm excited today to talk about this paper and to welcome Scott. So maybe I'll let, Scott, I'll let you sort of give a little um, background to yourself. And then before we talk about the paper. Yeah, that'd be great. Well, first, I'll say that um, I actually didn't have any idea that that I had that big of an impact during your postdoc, but I'm I'm glad it worked out. I'll also preface this with saying that Brian's one of my favorite colleagues to talk with about arsenic. We've known each other now a long long time, and even though we have spent most of our time at DOE meetings where arsenic's really not the big concern, we seem to gravitate back to to arsenic pretty regularly. So that's my my quick preface there. Let me give you a background of who I am. So I'm, I've been at Stanford now for 21 years. Before that, I was a faculty member at the University of Idaho for six years. I got interested in arsenic actually when, when I first started at Idaho. I'd been working on other trace elements, a lot of work on chromium in particular, and I was looking at, at what the the major challenges were for the areas like Montana, uh, Idaho, parts of Washington, so the Intermountain West. And it turns out from mining impacted sites, arsenic was one of the big players. And so I started working on that in the, just I'll date myself here. So that was the, the uh, early mid nineties. And then as just as I was transferring to Stanford, the whole Southeast Asia arsenic situation was really coming to light. And I started thinking that, well, anybody who has expertise in arsenic should start thinking about working in, in Asia. And, but I was just starting a family then. So I held off, uh, for about a year and a half or two years. And then, uh, a guy from MIT who maybe you're reading some of his papers too, Charlie Harvey came out and he had done his PhD work here at Stanford. And so he gave a seminar on the work that they had just started in, in Bangladesh. And by the end of his visit here, I was hooked. And so I started working on, on that problem 2000, 2001. Uh, and so where that ended up moving then was my group really focused on trying to decipher the intersection between biology and chemistry within the physical construct of the system that was leading to arsenic. And the ultimate goal is really kind of coming up with predictive power of both in space and time, how arsenic would get from coming out of the Himalayas to get into the groundwater. And then we held a, a meeting in 2009 that had a bunch of the, the big 
researchers working on the, the problem come together. And this is this paper is the outcome of that, that um, as Brian said, that me and Lex and, and Holly ended up writing. So that's that's the quick background. Oh, interesting. I, I always sort of thought it came out of that 2009 meeting, but I wasn't like totally sure. So then I'm going to dig it. So were you invited to submit it or were you trying like, because that's always like the hard, like right, getting a review into science is sort of always tricky. Yeah. So as the meeting was being organized, we were talking with the editors at Science about the probability that we would have something quite compelling for them to come out of this. And so the dialogue started early and they had they expressed interest. And so then as we started formulating it, we were sending them outlines and 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 that's how it kind of naturally uh, progressed. So it was it was maybe a, a forced invitation, if you will. Okay. No, it's nice because even like as I was saying, like even like so I guess this paper is about ten years old. It was probably written about ten years ago if it came out in twenty ten. And I think yeah. right, still to this Day, I always think this is one of the nicer review articles, right? There's been, like, we've all had papers come out since this, but it really, it, I think it's just the one who, it thinks both, like, large scale, small scale, ties it together, and really th thinks about sort of the interplay of the microbes, the geology, the hydrogeology pretty well. Yeah, I think it was a, it, partially it was a good team, and we were also playing off of a, a really good meeting where we had all these different experts together. Yeah. But you know, Lex brings really a kind of an unparalleled depth in terms of doing the the monitoring and really thinking through the the scale of the the problem. And Holly brings great depth in terms of the hydrology and also scaling. And then my job was to try to represent the microbiology or the the processes that the microbes were, were driving along with some of the chemistry. So, you know, what we all basically call biogeochemistry. Yeah. No, and I think, I think it does that nicely because even like as you start, I'm sure because like I, I reread it for before we talked because it's like a lot of times, you know, I won't, like I'll skim it, you know, if I, when I give it to the students because I sort of, I've seen it so many times. But I'm like, I went back and reread it and I thought it, it did it nicely because I think this was also like one of the first papers like, like in the figure one where you really looked at all the um like all the drainage systems off the Himalayas together. Like he sort of yeah. thought right, thought big picture and like how are they similar and different and right, because some of them are deeper, some of them are shallower. So I thought that was like just to begin with, I thought it was like a nice big picture way to start off. Yeah, I think it, it represented the period where we we're really starting to broaden our thinking that it wasn't just a problem, obviously, in, in Bangladesh, but there was a problem in all the major river systems coming out of the Himalayas, and not just in the deltas, but actually back in the inland basins as well. And so that I, I do think that was an, an important point that was being made. Yeah, because yeah, I think even, like, if you think about it, like, since some of the work you've even done since then, I think even, like, it's even broadened, like, even, like, where we look worldwide since then has broadened out a lot. Like, you know, like, throughout the U.S., like, places we may have, like, I think we probably overlooked it early, right? We're still, yeah. we're still learning I, a lot. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think that, you know, it was somewhat of awakening at that point was that this isn't just a, a Bangladesh problem, but that it's really widespread. And as you noted, it's, it's even beyond just the Asian continent. It really represents something that the same processes replicate themselves in, in many drainage systems across the world. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I agree, because I think even, like, I'm going to do an aside from this paper. 
right? We were, it seems like we're probably a little bit slow to pick up on it in the U.S., right? This, I think, the scale of the issue, almost. I know yeah, we, we tend to gloss over those things because we, we can engineer our way out of it pretty easily. Yeah, I guess I never, oh, I never thought of it. I guess we have, right? That's sort of how we've done it, right? We sort of ignored the source because we've always sort of just treated it. Yeah, and I think now that we're relying more and more on our rural water systems, for particularly for groundwater in those areas, uh, I know at least in California, it is becoming a much, much bigger issue. And in fact, a lot of the agriculturally and uh, oriented sectors of California have the same kind of problems that you're seeing in, in areas like Bangladesh, Cambodia, Vietnam. No, I, I agree 100% because I started, we, we started doing like more work with New Jersey Right, and we knew New Jersey had some issues, but we always, oh, it's not bad. But I think it's right; it's a little bit bigger issue than I think. Like, and then how do you en- how do we engineer our ways out of it? How do we help people with different treatment systems, etc.? Right, I think that's. I think you're right. It's been a little bit trickier than we sort of gave it credit originally. Yeah, and a lot of it. I don't know if we want to digress this far, but a lot of it comes down to to the cost structures, and yeah. since we think about in in the U.S., you're always talking about the weird units of acre feet, but I know the numerical values for that, so I'll roll with it. <laughs> and um, if you're thinking about domestic water, yeah. you can start thinking about prices that are up around 1500 or San Diego just put in about a year, year and a half ago, they brought on line a desalinization plant. And that cost of that water is about uh, $1,800 to $2,000 per acre foot. If you're moving into the agricultural sector, and again, I'll just use California to make sure that I'm accurate on this, but California, the average price in agriculture is on the order of 15 to $20 per acre foot. So when you start thinking about treating water that's contaminated with something like arsenic, you're, it's really prohibitive if you're trying to think in an agricultural sector. Wow. No, that, yeah, that's, no, yeah, I hadn't thought of it like in terms of, this is a digression, but I think I'm always happy to digress. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. No. No. I hadn't thought. That's a that's a big difference in the cost. I guess. Yeah. Because you're like out east. It's a lot of now. It's I don't know the cost, but now it's like when we we're not dealing with the um, agricultural sector. We're dealing with like homeowners putting in reverse osmosis systems. Yeah. And how much? That's like that's a lot of stuff we talk about now. Is you know, are you going to get a whole house system? Like if you're we're talking more homeowners reverse osmosis than agriculture. Yeah. Right. And if, if you're out in the, so most of California's agriculture is in the Central Valley area. And if you go to the, basically the farm working communities, they can't afford to put in the um, reverse osmosis systems. So when they're on well water or even on a central supply well, they're, they're really in trouble if they have things like arsenic and um, other contaminants that are getting in there. And arsenic is one of the more pervasive ones. So that becomes a huge issue because you just don't have the economic ability to really deal with it. Um, and that's where management becomes such a critical issue. If you can get on the front end and start thinking of cheaper ways to get around that problem, or in a lot of these cases, it's something that land management has caused. And so if you can get ahead of that and not replicate that, you can in, end up having uh, a much cheaper alternative for uh, a solution. Yeah, oh, that's interesting. Okay, I'm going to get back. So I'm, I'm going to bring us back to where we were. And Okay. Oh, how's that? I'm going to bring us back in because you're talking about heterogeneity. And I still struggle, I'm going to tell you, I still struggle with spatial heterogeneity and arsenic. Like when I look at it, do you, are you seeing patterns? Or are you sort of seeing 
chaos? And is that sort of helping us get towards the solution? Because you can always sort of find low arsenic wells. You know, a lot of these places, so like if you go to like, let me step back. So like if you go to like sort of Bangladesh, West Bengal, if you look in figure one, you, you can drill pretty deep. And that usually saves you by going deeper. We're now seeing some issues with that. Like you've seen it in Vietnam where you can get, you know, stuff coming out of clays. So that's another digression. So it seems like, but then other areas, you can get spatial heterogeneity too. Sort of like within village and village to village. At least you can find high and low arsenic. And so it's sort of like, I'm just curious, like, back to that, how how you think about that. Because I'm still, I always struggle with this idea, like, am I going to find a pattern that makes sense? Or are we just seeing geological heterogeneity? And sort of, and then what scales do we see things at? Yeah, that's, that's a super great question and, and a really important point. The, the answer, I would say, is the last thing that you brought up, which it's really geologic heterogeneity. And that um, that heterogeneity, if you want to think of it in this way, in terms of a repeating pattern, has has variability in terms of what that, that spatial uh, representation of heterogeneity really is. And so if you're if you spend very much time looking at um, drill cores or if you have somehow the ability to, to really open up an aquifer system and you start looking, you get this really quickly is that there these are all alluvial depositions. And so the alluvial deposition over enough time has is going to end up with clay lenses in a sand area and sand lenses within clay deposits. And you're just going to have that. And so I think that the way I would describe it is that heterogeneity is the the norm not the exception and that's going to lead to this variation that can be anywhere from a meter scale variation to something that might be a village scale uh, variation and you have to to really study the geomorphology back in time to to figure out what that variation is going to be have being cognizant of it it can play to your to our advantages like you were saying where you can find low and high um, zones spatially and then and use those the other side though is to be careful that the is to recognize the hydrology and that the water is going to flow or that as you pump water you may start either pulling water from a different source well you're going to pull water maybe from a different source and that source could have higher or lower arsenic depending on where it's pulling from what we've seen as you noticed in in vietnam is that the and we've now seen this in california that the clay layers within a lot of these confined aquifers have higher arsenic concentrations and if you get into physics, it's pretty easy to figure out, figure this out. Like, first of all, we know from the biogeochemistry why there would be more arsenic in those zones because they're um, oxygen deprived and have greater organic carbon. So they're more biologically active. And then the second part on the physics side is that that water is held in those interstitial channels by the, the pressure formation of the aquifer. And so as you start pumping water first out of the sands and the gravels, that clay water has been isolated and it holds in there until you depressure enough that now that water basically seeps out. And so you have a whole new source of water that's coming in. And it's like the dirty sponge is that that clay is that dirty sponge. And now you're starting to, to squeeze it and pull the water out. So anyways, that's a longer way around of saying that one, we can to summarize, we can use the heterogeneity to our advantage to find the high and low zones and then pull the water from the low zones, but then being cognizant that that chemistry can change over time and we have to be aware that what was low may become high. 
No, I, I totally agree. And I think we're starting to see that more often, like what we thought were stable systems. You know, they're not as stable as we thought they were, right? All these things are probably happening a little bit faster than we expected. Or maybe, or not expected isn't quite the right word. It's like, until you start thinking about it, they're, ha they're happening faster than you'd originally think until like, you really start to think through the problem, right? Then we're seeing all yeah. these secondary effects and it's, 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 um, there's a lot more happening there, right? Because I, I used to always think of more of like a stable system, but they're really not that stable by the time you put all this pumping and depressurizing and moving around. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, no, no. So I think, and I agree. And the, the heterogeneity, it is interesting, right? Because it has, right, when you go into Southeast Asia, that is really helping people get low arsenic water, right? We've, right, we've seen that, you don't talk about it here, but people don't really like using filters if you're doing like home personal filters. So this idea of being able to either drill a well to a different depth or use a well nearby does, is one way of really, you know, getting low arsenic water. Yeah. 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 So I know, I know the whole, the whole filter thing is a separate, I'd always, um, that's a separate topic that I always, <laughs> I, I find fascinating. I don't know if you've had to, if you've seen it, like just the idea of people using, not using filters, but that's, that's totally off topic. Okay. I'm going to ask you, since you're really a mineralogist, you had a nice figure in the paper looking at the gray and orange sands, right? Yeah. And I guess, right, and maybe just to give some, because it seems like that gray versus orange, even though it's very, it's a simple idea, it's a simple concept, it really is an important concept when you get into arsenic in these systems. Yes, that's true. Yeah. Do you want me to explain why? or, or I, I don't know, because do right, you're losing, but then how much, I'll ask you a, I'll ask you like a, a figure question. Like how much iron mineralogy do you think you need to change to go from like that orange to gray? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. Yeah. Um, let's go the reverse from gray <laughs> to orange. <laughs> so, no, great, because I, I guess I'm going to interrupt. I guess that is like, right, that's the, that is the tough question. Like what's really, and we're, like, and you've been, you've been tracking, trying to figure out iron mineralogy for a long time. So, uh, okay, yeah. so I'm going to, I'll be excited to hear. Yeah. So let's start just so that everybody gets a, a good feeling on this. That uh, one, it's notable that iron is a tremendous pigment. And and what I mean by, by tr tremendous, it's a very strong pigment. So it's giving you the color <clears throat> colors even when there's a very small amount of it there. But the cool thing about, another cool thing about iron is that it changes colors depending on uh, the oxygen status. Um, so if we're de um, depleted in oxygen, so we're going anaerobic, then the, generally the iron shifts to iron 2 plus and we have the grays. And if it's oxidizing well aerated, then we're going to go to the orange. But the catch on this is that it's, it's all about what the surface veneer is. And so you, if you have, if you're starting off with, um, fairly uh, anaerobic materials, reduced iron in a, in a nice gray color. All you need is a few microns, so just a, a small tiny fraction of that iron on the periphery of it to get oxidized to make it look orange. And I'll just go adrift for a moment. If you go down to uh, any place along the coast where it's tidally influenced, 
and go into like an estuary with with uh, muds there, what you'll find is that as the water, as the tide is dra going draining out, it's all gray sediments, and then it quickly becomes this orange sediment. But if you go look at it, it's just a tiny little film on the surface that's making it orange. And so that's the, the same thing when we think about the aquifer sands, that they can get just a, a thin film and, and turn orange. Uh, the reverse is a little bit different. The orange is a stronger pigment than the gray, and so it, it takes more iron reduction to start getting the, the grays really being pronounced. But on the total iron concentration, you're still talking maybe 5 or 10% of the iron is all it takes to, to flip the color. So 90% could be, could be gray and 10% orange, and you would see orange. That's interesting because I think that's what's – right, because um, – Ben Bostic's been thinking about ferry hydrate forever. And I think coming back to also like when, when Matt Palazzato, I was originally talking to him, like when you're originally doing some of this iron mineralogy, it was tough to see variability in the sediments, right? And that, that That's right, especially if you have any sands in there. So if you have sands, the iron is locked in its state and you can't see any change. And then it's this surface film that's really mattering. And that's what really is the is – the, the part that's a smaller fraction, but really gives you the pigment and gives you the reactivity. Oh, nice. I hadn't really thought about like that surface film idea, but that makes, as soon as you said it, it makes a lot of sense because it's sort of, right, and that's also the reactive area where your arsenic's going to be bound. Yeah, that's exactly right. Right, so that, that, I think that, that makes a lot, that, that, like when you explain it like that, that, I think that makes a lot of sense because it sort of, it, it makes sense the color, it makes sense of the arsenic being bound, so I think that sort of ties it all. That's a nice way of, I hadn't thought about it like that way. So that's good. Yeah, because you always think about then this idea of like iron reduction versus arsenate reduction, sort of what's the important process. And you all touch on that a little bit, but it seems like I almost feel like that's like a secondary question because like you need, you sort of need both of them a little bit and they're going to happen if it's yeah. a reducing environment. That that's exactly right. And Lex and I would have disagreements over this pretty regularly. So I, I'm in the same camp that you just described, where the two are inseparable, and I think you have to think of them as a collective importance. And Lex was all about focusing on no, it's iron reduction. It's like no, no, it's iron and arsenic reduction. Yeah, yeah. But when you think about the microbes, I guess I always think about the right. And I'm starting to change some thinking on this, like. There's a lot more iron around, so like that's going to support m the majority of my like microbial growth is going to have to be through sulfur, or iron, or ferment, you know, some other process. Like the arsenic can't just support that. Yeah, much. you're you're absolutely right, and I think the way I look at it is that most, not all, but most of the arsenic reducers are also iron reducers, and so if you're starting to dissolve the well, and let's back up one other thing that's important on this is that. The iron reduces, reducers can do this extracellularly, right? So the enzymes are all, mostly, not all, but mostly um, on the outer membrane, whereas the arsenic reductases are uh, internal, right? So they're in the periplasm for the gram-negative bacteria. So you have to get the arsenic off the solid. So if the iron is starting to get reduced and the arsenate is coming off, then it's easy to go intracellular. And so if you're an iron reducer that can also reduce arsenic, you get double advantage there, right? You can do both. No, you're right. You get like a free electron. Yeah. Yeah, That's it. yeah but, you know, we're starting to 
just like there's a total aside. We're thinking we're starting to think more about autotrophs and sulfur cycling in these uh, systems also. I don't know yeah. if I don't know if you've all gone down that bad path yet. No, but I think it's a good one to go. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. I, I I think you have to. Like we've um we're starting to see more and more of it. So it's trying to sort of think more holistically about these these um cycles and systems in the subsurface. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Okay. But I'm going to keep us moving forward because I sort of, I'm enjoying talking about the paper. I think the one thing you all did nice in the papers, you also thought sort of from source to sink. And I think you did that originally, like sort of the arsenic, you know, starting the Himalayas being transformed, coming down the rivers, how's it being deposited, right? A little bit about, right. A little bit about the role of salt, like sulfate and right. You sort of, you have to be in these low sulfate environments for this to have the arsenic. That's right. 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 And so usually you don't see it quite as much when you get right near, um, right, the high salinity regions. Exactly. Yeah. As soon as you get to the coastal regions where the sulfate levels are, uh, or the sulfate source, maybe is the right way to say it, is cranking up the arsenic drops out. Yeah. So, okay. So I guess maybe then, so we don't go on too long. So to tie, so then you go into like a nice section about, I guess, vulnerability of like, We've already talked about, like, are you, I guess I'll ask this question. Now you've been doing this. Are you more or less worried about, like, these low arsenic aquifers? Do you, like, are you more, do you, like, are you, are you thinking, okay, we have low arsenic aquifers. We can sort of tap into them. I think we know a solution. Are you thinking that camp? Are you, like, ooh, I'm more worried. Arsenic's more mobile than we thought. We have to be more protective of these low arsenic Mm -hmm. aquifers going forward. Yeah. That... That's the um, billion-dollar question, I think, and um, I'll give you my answer. I, if there are uh, domestic, distributed domestic wells, low-volume low wells, then I'm pretty secure in tapping into those and utilizing yeah. them. If you're starting to, to go into large-scale pumping, either for agriculture or municipalities, then I think you are – uh, vulnerable to intrusions of high arsenic waters. Yeah. You know what happened? I just I hadn't been to Bangladesh in a couple of years, and I went back to do field work in May. And the one big thing I noticed, every like not everyone, but lots of people are putting in rooftop Gazi tanks. So like, uh-huh. so for like two hundred dollars, you like if you install a bigger well, you can get it. You get a downhole pump. That's two like ten gallons a minute, and you pump it up to a gaz like a uh, must be a hundred gallon tank on your roof, right? And so it's amazing how many people I hadn't been in a few years. How many people have switched to this system? Like it, it's 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 really an impressive change. People going from like the hand pumps to the like the the household gazi tanks. Yeah. So I, I think things are it's funny things are changing again, sort of faster than we're expecting sort of on the homeowner side. I think it's just because it's, right, there's all this, there's this importing of cheap pumps into Bangladesh. It's a, it's a lot of um, like Chinese pumps that are coming in that work uh, beautifully. Yeah. So I don't know if you've, I don't know if you've traveled the region at all recently have seen any of this, but I think it's going to change the hydrology again. Uh, okay. I haven't, I haven't seen that. No. Yeah. But, but at the same time, like, I think, like household pumps, right? They're sort of like you can be a little romantic about them, right? They're sort of low volume, <laughs> right? But who wouldn't? Yeah. I, I, if I was there, that's the first thing I would probably invest in is a household water supply, also. Yeah, 
So yeah, yeah. So it's, I think it's gonna be. It's, I think it's gonna be an interesting change. It's still not gonna be as much as irrigation, right? Yeah. No. That that's right. Not even close. I think. I hope. No, no, I agree. And hopefully, if irrigation, a lot of these areas, if you still sort of, they can stick. Yeah, great. Because I guess irrigation's not as. Like, I was, I was going to say something, but I'm already taking it back. You don't quite worry about the arsenic content in irrigation as much, but you still do. You've done a lot of work on the arsenic. So I don't know. I don't even know how to answer that question I was about to ask you. <laughs> like, how much do you worry about arsenic and irrigation water, you know? I, I, I worry about it actually a lot, to be truthful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, as much as we talk about the groundwater issue, I actually see the bigger problem being rice. Yep. And and not just because of the arsenic in the rice, but actually because what's going to happen with climate change, adding a lot of pressure to the rice and also changing. So temperature and arsenic are both stressors to the rice crops. Yep. And as you start adding more arsenic to the to the rice fields and you increase the temperature, the yields are going to get hammered. And that's what worries me a lot. No, I, I, I agree. I agree with you. Cause I, I think on the toll side, that was one of those couple of those rice papers that come out recently. Those were some nice results where they really show the change in yields. Yeah. And I, and, and, and I don't know how to get around that. No, I don't know. I don't know if there is a way around that, but then there's that, but then that actually sort of starts to become a big cultural shift in a lot of these communities. Yeah. So you have, we're, we're digressing, so pull us yeah. back if we need to, Brian. But super, <laughs> super quickly on that, yeah, there, there are two options. Yeah. You have one is if, if you're not under flooding conditions, yeah. which increasingly with the way the levee systems are going, that, that tends to be the case, then you could switch over to corn or wheat and have arsenic-bearing soils, and it's really no big deal. Um, but if, if you're going to continue to grow rice, then you have to start really thinking about two things, and that is, one, um, new breeding efforts that are going to give you uh, varieties that are that are most they're least susceptible to the arsenic and to the temperature stresses, yep. and then you got to think about changing your management practices a little bit so that you can try to um, increasingly aerate the the root zone. No, no, I no, I agree with you. I think these are all. I think, I guess the reason I digress, it's, I think that's what your review paper does nicely, right? You. You really like you hit all these important topics for the groundwater, right? And off these topics, like in the last ten years, I think we've started to look at these other problems. Yeah. So I think this the paper. I think that's why I sort of like still like this review paper. It set it up nicely, so you can actually, when I do talk to the students about this and do like all these other questions, like they clearly come up. Like yeah. you, you can see like. You can see how the field had to progress, and like you, you, you set the stage for that nicely. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> no, you, it did. I think I think that's why it works well, and I think that's why we can then, right? You can talk about these other issues that now, right? You've started to work on after this, and other people have also. Yeah, I think that's one of the, been the really best things about it, right, is that what it's done to get other people motivated on it. Mm -hmm. No, I agree. Okay, so I am going to wrap us up there. Usually when I talk to people about papers, I ask them how the reviews went. But I, since you were probably invited, you probably, did it go through a review process? Oh, yeah, many. <laughs> oh, was it a tough one, an easy one, or do you even remember? 
uh, it, it was, um, I wouldn't say trivial, but it was, I guess I would describe straightforward. The, the okay. comments I thought were, were quite useful. They were all ones where we could um, address them. And, yeah. and it, the positive aspect was that I thought it continued to improve the paper. Oh, nice. Okay. That's always encouraging. Yeah. You know, some of these, as you know, Ryan, some yeah. of the nature and science in particular, you can really get stuck in yeah. just kind of going in a circular argument and, and the editors won't pull you out of it. And that drives yeah. me crazy. This one did not have that. It was very linear. Yeah. You know, that happened on a recent paper of mine. Like the editor wouldn't make a decision. So like we had, we had to switch journals because we were, we were stuck in that loop. Either like the editor had to either say it's not an issue Right, there's no way we could have solved it. Like you had this, we said this is our right. That's happened to us. He said this is our. We sort of laid it out. These are our issues. Either you accept those issues in the paper, or we have to move on. Right. Exactly. So, oh, that's good to hear. So I think that that's always encouraging news. So I think I'm going to wrap us up there. This was thank you for the chat. This was amazing. It was, it was great to hear sort of how it came through and about the paper and talk arsenic and hopefully. I guess we'll see you at. A I'll probably see you at AGU this fall. Where, um, yeah, I think, you, I think you're speaking in the one session, so it'll be it'll be great to catch up. Cool, sounds fun. Okay, and thanks so much for doing this. It's really appreciated. Yeah, absolutely. And thank and, you. Yeah, and I'll send you the link once I have it all up, so you can you can always listen oh. to it. Cool, that'd be great. Okay, cool. Thanks, Scott. All right, Brian. Thanks. Bye. Bye.